0: Well, good evening, and I would like to greet each of you in the name of Christ, the only worthy name that we have to gather around and to claim. The work of education, which brings us together tonight, makes us think further than the school. The children that play in this room walk these halls and sit in these classrooms. Are our church of tomorrow, as this world stands. And it should behoove us to do the best that we can to equip them with the tools they need to go about the kingdom's work. Because it is a very important work. And teachers have a special place and role in that work. I remember once some years ago that I'm a licensed electrician by trade and I was taking a continuing ed course, which we have to do to keep up our license, but we always thought of ourselves, I think, largely as just tradesmen. I learned my trade from my dad. We always called ourselves wire twisters just that simple but I sat in that class that night and one of the first things our instructor wanted to do was instill on us why you're here in this class you're here because you're professionals you have a trade you're not just somebody that does this because he can't do anything else you are a person of value You know, I think I saw some of those electricians like myself, we were kind of looking at each other and and feel like we were becoming a little more important than we were when we walked in the door. That needs to happen to us as teachers sometimes. To realize the role that we are playing in the kingdom's work is a very important role. It's not just a place you're filling. It is a very important role. As was mentioned, our topic tonight that we'll be talking about is why some children learn differently. Now, how did I get involved in this? A little bit of introduction for my wife and I, Uh, Martha Ann and I, we come from Montezuma, Georgia, and we enjoy the sunny south. And I taught school there in Montezuma, at the Montezuma Mennonite School, for, well, I was in the school for a little over 22 years. And Martha Ann has taught, I think, over nine years in different schools. So we both are very familiar with education. It's been a large part of our lives. And it's interesting that what education meant to me Personally, I had a hard time in school. Didn't really enjoy school. I enjoy learning. Love to learn. To understand things. But the the official learning classroom was not a friendly place to me. I'm a dyslexic. Reading didn't come easy. Spelling is awful. My speller's sitting back there. And I depend on her, too. But when I was going to school, I tried. I wanted to please. I wanted to do. And I had no clue why I couldn't or what was wrong with me. And as a young boy, I went through a lot of stressful times. I carried a good bit of emotional baggage with me. And that's what these children do. What I'm talking about myself is is very common in children that struggle. And one thing we put a lot of energy into is hiding who we are to keep other people from knowing that we're like we are. We don't want to appear dumb and stupid. And we have no idea why we are like we are. Well, Martha Ann and I, we work for Christian Light Education and we're what they call school reps. We work in the southern states. And as we visited schools, we saw we we this goes back 5 6 years ago we saw these children everywhere that were strugglers. Word got around this man has a special interest in children that have learning struggles, and I do. That was my most important interest in school. When I had students like that, or that I saw students like that, my heart went out to them. And i they, they were a special interest to me because I had worn their shoes many a day. And those shoes are hard to wear school for us is not easy. And I know sometimes the teachers, we as as teachers, because I was there too, we say, if that child would just stay busy, if they would just stay at their work, they can get something done. They wouldn't have to carry all this homework home. But do you know that no one likes to stay with something that's hard to do? If I would see, we don't understand why we are like we are. That's what I want to do tonight is I want to help you understand some of these things. And if I would give all of you a job, but before you get that job, all of you would be born with a physical handicap that would prevent you from being able to Grip something with a good, firm grip. And the job I'm going to give you is peeling potatoes. Every day, you're going to get to peel potatoes. Lots of potatoes. Now, you know how uh, interesting it is to peel potatoes, probably. How easy would it be for you, in your constant effort to peel potatoes, and can't really grip the peeler correctly, but you you struggle, but you try to go as hard as you can, how easy would it be for you to go somewhere with your attention to think about something else just to get a break from the potatoes? It would be pretty easy. Diversion sometimes is something that we really look for and want. Well, I know that's, a, that's kind of a silly illustration, maybe. But when children have something going on, something they're born with, and every day they face something that's hard, they look for diversion sometimes. And that diversion is what we see as teachers. We don't see the struggle. And the children that go home with lots of homework are often the children that don't need any homework. They're the children that need to go home and air out their brain, think about other things, and do other things, and recharge their battery for tomorrow to face a day in the classroom. So in my experience of working with children that struggle, and trying to understand why they learn differently, why are there different learning struggles? And and studying that, trying to find an answer for that why, it uh, took me on a journey. It really did. I think often of myself. And children that often that have talents that are almost hidden talents, to us. They can't prove themselves in the classroom. I had a little boy once that struggled through school. Coming, I taught the upper grades in that school. And as he was coming through school, I knew his case very well because I was also principal. And I was waiting for the day when Jason was going to be in my classroom. And as soon as he was under my care, I started trying to help him survive because I had become quite good at survival tactics. So Jason would, he struggled. He really struggled. Today, I know why. he He's dyslexic. But at that time, I didn't know what dyslexia was. And... There was a few things that Jason taught me. I would notice that some days Jason comes in and when he comes when he clears the threshold, he brings with him the weather report in our classroom. Is it gonna be stormy today? Or is it gonna be partly cloudy or maybe sunny? I could see it in his attitude and countenance, and Jason's head. Uh, failed a couple of times. He was an older boy. But uh, we were on real good terms with each other. And I knew what some of the things were that Jason enjoyed. They weren't found at school. His father was a barn builder. Jason shingled most of those barns in the afternoons and evenings and weekends. But that little boy... Well, I say little boy, he was a young man. He could lay shingles like a grown man. And he laid shingles well. He took pride in his work. His water runs were perfect. That was where Jason could excel. And if I would talk about those things and ask him about things like that, he would just brighten up and start shining. But I noticed that the times when Jason came in and looked stormy, I got to thinking I was sitting at my desk one afternoon, looking out the window, thinking about Jason. I thought, what is it? What, what makes some days better than others? And some days so much worse than others. And it kind of came together as I was thinking there that, you know, when Jason has a good day at school, he's able to get most of his work done and he feels good about himself, tomorrow he's going to come in ready to face school, ready to attempt putting himself into something that's really, really hard for him. And as I thought, the thought came to me that the victories and success of today is the courage to face tomorrow. All children, By some means need to experience success in what they're doing. That will and and when we walk with them through those times, then they will draw closer to us and feel like we understand them because when you believe in someone and we know someone believes in us. We feel like we have someone to go through the hard times with us, and someone that will try to understand us. Well, my wife and I, as we traveled, like I said, we saw these children and we were interested in them. Word got around that this man has a special interest in children that struggle. And soon teachers started coming to us as we'd come to schools and wonder, can you give me some ideas? Can you help us here? Can you give us... Some tips as to what to do. And so I was I would do that. Uh, but I would, because I had walked those paths and I had a lot of experience myself, but I had worked with a lot of students that walked in them too. But a dyslexic has a real problem. He has a deep need to understand how things work. And I didn't understand. What was going on with all these children? I'd listen to all of this stuff, and I would try to hand out some ideas. We came out of a school in Mississippi one time, and I told my wife, all we're doing is passing out Band-Aids. We aren't getting to the root. I don't even know where the root is. So we began to study learning struggles. That's where I wanted to go. I wanted to give real answers. And it didn't take long, and we were in a seminar on dyslexia. And uh, the lady up there was going over symptoms and things that you see and dyslexia. And, and I was just sitting there taking all this in, and in a little bit I punched my wife. I said, that lady's talking about me. She's describing me. I understand exactly what she's trying to get these folks to understand. Until we left that seminar, I knew that I wasn't just dumb and stupid like I had classed myself as. And it felt good to have a name for it. I'm dyslexic. Now, what that means, I don't know, but I'm dyslexic. And what are all we're going to go with that? So my wife and I, we went on to study dyslexia. And I wanted to be able to tell people, your child is dyslexic, is what their struggle is. And this is what's going on and this is what can be done for it. So we began to study. And we ended up taking a college graduate level course on dyslexia and brain processing. And I would have never survived that course had it not been for my wife. We went through two manuals without that thick. We took a whole course, a quarter's course, in six days. You know, when you go to take a college course, you spend an hour or so in a classroom each day? Well, we got it all in one week, in six days. It was profound. But it was an eye-opener. And what helped me to survive that is what we were studying was me. I lived what these folks are trying to understand. And uh, when we finished up that course, there's a lot of interesting things that went on in that course, but when we finished it up, we would have the ability and the credentials to legally screen children uh, for dyslexia. And the screen that we use is illegal. Screen. What I mean by legal is you've got to be careful when you hang the tag of dyslexia on a child. We don't even work outside of the Anabaptist people, because there is a legal system out there that will trip you up quickly. And we went through some of that in our course. This course was taught by an uh, instructor under the University of San Diego. And so they had to touch all of the secular areas too. But we're thankful for what we learned because it it turned on more lights and helped us to understand. That's what I'd like to leave some of it with you tonight. I don't know what you came here tonight thinking dyslexia is. There's a lot of interesting thought out there as to what dyslexia is. Some people think you need to read backwards and upside down and and all of these different things of, of writing letters and numbers and all. You know, that's really not what dyslexia is. It, that can be a kind of a side symptom of dyslexia. But what dyslexia is about is sounds. It's how do you process sound. And a dyslexic person is born with, the mental machinery for processing sound that is different from the non-dyslexic. It is a physical, different brain design. And by the way, dyslexia is not anything you can catch, so you don't have to worry who you're sitting next to tonight. I don't know how well you know each other. But it's going to come to you in your genetic package from your parents is where it's coming from. If we have a dyslexic child, we do have a dyslexic parent, one or the other, or maybe both. And with it being as common as one out of five people the world over, it's not hard to imagine that that can be real. But see, so many of us don't know those statistics and don't realize how common it is. We were screening a couple's children. We, well, this couple had two daughters that struggled in school. And they just really struggled. And they were up, you know, we're talking about upper grade, even high, the one was high school. So we screened them. They both screened out dyslexic. And we sat down then to have a conference with the parents. And they were sitting on the couch here. And I mean, we were sitting on the couch here. And the wife was over there. And the husband's over there on a chair, you know, and we are talking about this thing. And I came around to the subject of. You know, dyslexia is inherited. It's the only way children get it. It comes to them with their genetics. It got so stone quiet in that room. And they were throwing these little rapid glances at each other. You know, some people think of dyslexia as a pretty serious thing, almost scary. And I thought, well, I'll let them digest that for just a minute and we'll go on. He kind of took a breath and looked at her and he said, you don't like to read. She was ready. I mean, she was so fast on the draw, she said, you can't spell. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the truth of the matter is they were both dyslexic. After we got it, up on the table and started picking it apart, they were both dyslexic. And never had known it. Never could dream that because of what their genetics are, that it was through them that their children got what they have and are dealing with it. But I want us all to understand tonight that God does not make mistakes. He does not make mistakes. It's okay to be different. We don't all have to be the same. And if you're different,
1: God created you that way.
0: He creates variety because that's exactly what He wants, is variety. Even variety, not only in learning, but also variety in the individual. Because as you'll find out tonight, dyslexia is not something that only shows up in school. Yes, it is very evident there, and that's why we're talking about it tonight, because of children that struggle and they learn differently because they're dyslexic. But dyslexics, period, process life differently. We do. We process life differently. And I, I hesitate tonight in, in talking. I don't want to lift up the dyslexic above the non-dyslexic. God created them all but i want us to understand more clearly what may be going on with these people that are kind of different and these children that go about their work differently things we can do for them how can we help them well there's a few simple questions you can or simple things you can do in evaluation work now we took off when we got started in this in this work we We screened children left and right to find out if they were dyslexic. And it was so interesting that then we would take that screen and we would talk to the parents. We'd hear these remarks like, well, that was kind of the way I did in school too, you know, and okay. And uh, things like that kept coming up. And then as we did it more and more and more, we realized, you know, we can find out a lot and almost better By talking with the parents before we go to the screen. Because every time, without fail, that we have questioned parents about themselves and kind of nosed around in their genetics and their struggles and strengths, and then we screen a child, all the screen does is shows us what we've already found. So we really. Run screens very seldom. Because a screen, without a doubt, will show us how a child is is phonetically processing. But it's not always necessary to go to the screen if everything's there. You know, I've I've talked about the fact of it being genetic. So if we have a child here that is struggling, this is something I encourage you to do in your schools. If you have a child that that is struggling... And you've come through the first grade, and that child is kind of stumbling around in their phonics, uh, just kind of dragging behind and identifying themselves as a struggler in this class. And by the time you get to, well, after Christmas and the first of the year, by then they should know, in most all curriculums, you should know all of your letters and sounds and be building words by that point. But if this child is struggling with that, and being able to retain the sounds and the letters and build words, they are definitely struggling phonetically. So as we step back to look at this child's struggle, if we can pinpoint that, yes, this is a phonetic struggle that this child has, because there are other struggles than phonetics, but yes, if we can say this is a phonetic struggle. And... Then we turn and ask ourselves, is it genetically supported? Let's, let's look at the parents and find out, did they have struggles? Maybe they still do. Maybe their spelling is not good. Maybe they struggle to get their thoughts down on paper, which is one of the greatest struggles a dyslexic has. And we And we see, yes, there's the genetics here. And maybe there's other siblings in the family. And we, that we can see the same struggle in. And that's because of the genetic connection. Okay, now we have the support of the genetics and we have a phonetic struggle. You're looking dyslexia square in the face. You don't need some man to come around with a screen to tell you that. You're looking dyslexia square in the face. So let's go on and talk a little bit about these children that deal with this, when they're trying to to take in, you know, and work with words in their schoolwork. And by the way, reading, we all know, reading is the foundation under all the subjects of school. So if reading is the struggle, then it affects pretty well all of school. so, <clears throat> if we have discovered we're at this point and we backed it up with genetics, we're ready to do something about it. We're around here into the first part or the second half and we're looking at something needs to be done. At that point, I would encourage you, don't keep walking in that rut. Don't keep just plowing down through that same place. Look for what you can do for that child. We teach... Phonetics can be taught more than one way. And there are programs out there that are very good at doing that, especially designed for that. The one that we would point you towards would be the Barton program. And the reason we do that is because it is a very good program with very good results. And... If you take that child and immediately switch them over into the Barton program and start into the Barton program, it is a phonics program that teaches phonics, all the rules to the English language, teaches them from an angle that is different than what the conventional is. Your conventional curriculums are designed and written by non-dyslexic people for non-dyslexic people. They've never been there so they don't know how to do it. It's not their fault. They do an excellent job. We work for Christian Light, but our work is strictly out in the field. Believe me, they do not want a dyslexic in curriculum development. I'd be totally dangerous because we explain things to death. We, we use a lot of illustrations. We think of how we think. And I was a very different teacher in school, very different because of my struggles. And when I was calling out spelling words, I was the little boy when I was a student. I was the little boy that was just panting along trying to get his spelling words written. The teacher's calling them out and I'm still trying to finish this one when she calls out the last one. And if I stop to erase something because this one doesn't look right, by then she's called out the next one. And it's just so frantic to try to keep up. And I get, you know, we're done, at least most of us are. Then I raise my hand, ask her to call out number three, number nine, number 14. The other students look at me like, did you go on vacation or something? I mean, she just called all these words out, but they don't know. They don't know how hard I was trying, how desperately I was trying to get these words down but I just couldn't build them in my mind with the machinery that I have. And it makes me feel very inferior because we don't want to appear, and see, we fear probably things bigger than they are, but we don't want to appear to be dumb, even as adults. I'm a licensed electrician, like I said. Just not too terrible long ago, I was at the county courthouse, and I was doing some uh permitting work for a job. And one of the first things the lady did was hand me a form to fill out. form had quite a few blanks on it. You know what that does to a dyslexic? His gut goes mm-hmm. up because I have to come up with the words that go in those blanks. And I wasn't far into that form at all. And I needed to write a word into a blank. I knew the word perfectly, but I didn't know how to spell it. And I did not want this lady to think I can't spell. I'm a professional, remember? So when you live like this long enough, you get pretty good at surviving. I began to scan the top of her desk. And the actual top of her desk had not seen daylight in a long time. She was evidently a very busy lady. And she had plenty of things to scan. And right over here, although it was upside down to me, that was fine, I saw the word I needed. Filled it in. She never knew I couldn't spell it. I left from there looking just as intelligent. But it's no fun living by your shirt tail. That's no fun. And children that survive in a classroom like that deal with a lot of pressure and a lot of self-esteem issues. And sometimes the baggage gets very heavy. And the stress of those things can be seen in different ways. Sometimes it results in attitude, Bedwetting, different things that are things that are a result of hidden heavy stress. But we can do better than that. We can do differently. We don't have to be stuck in these ruts of the way school has been done for ages. And we as educators, I don't know how many many of us in here tonight are teachers or have taught. Hand above the ear or elbow above the ear. There you go. There's quite a few. Okay. Uh, you know, as we're, as we're in these ruts that have been well laid and packed by generations of teachers before us, we do things the same way because that's the way school is done. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing something different. Timers, do you realize the stress that a timer puts on a child that is already stressed? If I'm working hard to do something and then you set a timer on me to do it, I know what that's like personally. That just compounds the stress. But then I'd like to ask you, see, we're preparing them for life. Out there in life, how many of you have jobs to do that you set a timer on yourself to do them. Fellow fella climbs on the bulldozer and cranks her up and sets his timer. Right? Wrong. Go out there in the workforce and find timers. I had a cabinet shop at one time, and if I'd have a fella building furniture for me, I wouldn't tell him to get all of your wood up here, your straight edge, your plans, and let me see you all set and then I'll set the timer let you go for it and let him grab an expensive piece of lumber and go to ripping and cutting and drawing on that stuff. No, absolutely not. I tell him, take your time, do a good job on this thing. That's what we're looking for. But in school, somewhere, timers came into school. And I don't know where. But I encourage teachers to take your timers And uh, take them home. Go bake cookies with them. I don't care what you do with them. Get them out of your classroom. Find another way to encourage children other than putting them under the pressure of a timer. We have some children that that actually almost cry when they see the teacher reach for a timer because of the pressure they're fixing to be under. So... uh, the way we do school, I challenge us to think of another way, because we're seeing that there is a hope for children out there that struggle. There are ways to make accommodations for them, to lighten the load. Sometimes children can do much, much better if they struggle with reading their instructions and directions, and think like there's nothing wrong with the teacher reading the directions to them. If you've got a student that's troubled, and you know they, they try, they really try, they have a test facing them. There's nothing wrong with making out a word bank, block of words, where the answers are found and mixed up with other things, to give them with the test, so that when they see that, that answer, they oh, there's the answer. I know, I know what the answer is. There it is. You know, that's, that's a big relief in help. Things that we can do to make life doable for them. And when children are going through the Barton program sometimes, and we, we, have, we work with children from high schoolers down to that first grader, uh, it's a big help to them to be able to have someone that understands them and is willing to walk with them and beside them. One of the first things that I've done in working with children that struggle at school is to assure them that I understand because, like I said, if they know that someone is willing to walk with them and believe in them, they'll put everything they have into it. I've had children that were so bogged down with emotional baggage, and we're talking about 7th, 8th grade children, that I had a mom call me one morning and she said, Mr. Whit, I don't know what I'm going to do with John. He won't come to school. All he'll do is cry. John was a real struggler. I told her, you get him out front, and I'll take over from there. She got him to school. He got out of the vehicle. I went out to John, and I talked with him, and I let him know that we're going we're to do this. We're going we're to do it together. I'm going to be with him, and it's going to be Okay. And I could just sense his emotional baggage going down. And John put himself into it. No, it didn't change his ability, but it changed his outlook. If we can understand children that struggle and have a heart for them, they will do their best for us. And then do for them what we can to help them to fix the problem. Because see, I'm not going to ask how many of you that raised your hand as teachers feel like you might be dyslexic because they're rare. People don't go into fields of work that they don't like and are hard for. When the school board came to me and asked me to teach school, I thought at first it was kind of funny. (laughs) You guys don't have a clue. And then I realized they're serious, and I got desperate. No, you don't want this. You, you don't want this guy in there. And this guy didn't want to get in there either. When I cleared the doorways of high school, when I walked out of high school, I was so relieved I had no intentions of ever darkening the doorway of a school again. And here these folks are wanting me to be a teacher. I finally took off running. Just to get away but I found out school boards can run too (laughs) and after a while there came a point to where I just had to say okay Lord I hope you know what you're getting us both into and he did he never let me down and I started down through that course of teaching school and I was a very different teacher I knew I'm not going to be able to hide from my students the fact that I don't read well. And I can still remember teaching social studies class. And I'm reading the book, you know, and we're talking about it. We're really interacting. This is a good social studies class. But there's nothing amusing in this lesson. And all of a sudden, I see these little sparkles in the eyes out there. And I had a real good relationship. I work with my students. I mean, we keep the cards all on the table all the time. No cat and mouse and anything. So I just asked him, I said, what's up, y'all? Mr. Whitty doesn't say what you just said. I realized I misread something. And I said, okay, where is, it? where is the problem? They said, you said this right here, and that's not what it says. And I looked, and it didn't. I misread it. Typical dyslexic. We fix it, and we go on. They accepted me just like I was. But as I became okay with myself, I still didn't understand myself until years later when I got out of school and went on to be a rep and went on to study dyslexia. It's when I really understood myself. And that's what we would like to help you do is to understand more the person, people that you know that don't articulate well, Maybe they struggle to read. Uh, And it can be ministers as well. My wife and I are kind of dangerous now that we're in this field. When someone is speaking, it doesn't take us long the way they use words to realize how they phonetically process. That's okay. We're not critical. I mean, after all, I'm dyslexic. But... You can pick it up. My children, I have seven living children. My first wife was not dyslexic. She passed away in 12. Martha and I have just been married about six years. But she was not dyslexic, but I am. Okay, what did that give us? That gave us seven living children that all but one son have signs of dyslexia. But they're not all academic signs. All of my daughters but one were teachers. They, they did well. They went on into... Uh, I have several children that are in the medical field. They all graduated with degrees and highest honors. I'm not bragging, just stating a fact. They're dyslexic, though. Because I know the signs of the dyslexic it has got two daughters that love to travel. When they were single, they just found all kinds of places they thought they needed to go. But you know, the one drove and the other one read the map, and you did not want to swap those two around, or your trip would have got very interesting. Dyslexics struggle with map reading sometimes. Dyslexics find themselves struggling with uh, directional issues right and left. That's okay. I've got a daughter that her husband threatens to put an L and an R on the backside of her hand. A little while back, she, one of their children had their first birthday, and you know how moms like to do. They set the birthday cake there and and uh, give the child a spoon or a fork, you know, and expect him to dive in and, and just have a good time here for a few minutes. Well, she wanted to give the little one you know, the spoon. And she started a couple of times and she kind of had not made an attempt and didn't, made an attempt and didn't. Finally, she looked at her husband and said, which is her right hand? I can't imagine being like that. That was never anything I dealt with, but it is real. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's different. Your dyslexic can get lost inside their own hometown sometimes because of the right and left issues. You see a person come out of Walmart and they have this vague look out there and they slowly start walking out across the parking lot and then they stop, dig into their purse. Notice I'm picking on you women. They're looking for their keys. They'll hit the panic button in the car that's beeping out there. There he is, you know. But that's, that's real to people. They, they struggle with directions and things like that and, and orientation. That is just one peculiarity. But to know dyslexia, it is a brain design. But then some of our most noted inventors... I mean, to the levels of Einstein, those people were dyslexic, severely dyslexic, but they thought far outside the box. If I would have a dyslexic and a non-dyslexic here tonight, and I would have my dyslexic standing here and my non-dyslexic standing over here, and I had two stacks of UNO you know, cards, and those are cards that have numbers and colors, on the cards and these decks of cards are all mixed up and I would give them each a deck of cards and I'd say I want you to put these in some kind of order some kind of order you're okay with that you feel good about and then I step back out of the picture well my dyslexic over here he starts turning this thing around looking at it and thinking I can tell he's really thinking and you know I come over here, and this this fellow, he goes to work right away. And come back in just a couple minutes, and they're finished. And I look over here, and there's a nice logical order, either put in a logical order by letter, I mean number, in color, or maybe both. I come over here, and my dyslexic, he got tired of turning that stack of cards over with me. Down on the table, it went, Boom! and he scraped it back together in a pot. He's through. Now we say, this is a mess, not acceptable. I come over here to this fellow. I say, can you produce for me a green five? With his logical order, he got that green five. I ask this one, can you produce a green five? Well, he dives into that stack of cards, and they start to flip, flop, and fly. And if he can still remember what he's looking for, he might find me a green five. Any of y'all have students like that? But you know what? It's out of this pile over here. Is where our greatest inventors, brain surgeons, computer geeks—they come out of this pile over here. It's hard to believe, isn't it? These folks over here do a very good job. They're very valuable in the kingdom. These people over here are also. They don't think in normal patterns. They think outside the box. They're not afraid to go outside the box. It's because they don't know what it's like to be in the box. These people over here don't like to get out of the box. They like nice, logical ways of doing things. And what they like best is some kind of written material that will tell them how to do it. And they'll rely on that written material, which is fine. Now, remember, God doesn't make mistakes. We need these folks over here to help us with their logical thinking to take the things that these folks come up with and put it into a useful form. Because some of these things out here are are good, but sometimes they need some help. So God made both of them for the work in his kingdom. That to illustrate thinking patterns for, now I'm talking basically about dyslexic adults now. Let's say that there's a wife that bought a new set of encyclopedias. She tells her husband, We need a little bookcase. We don't have a bookcase that these things will go in. Well, that's no problem. I'll stop by and pick you up one at Walmart. So he goes in there, and he looks at what they have on display, and he tells the clerk, I'd like a bookcase just like this. He says, sure, I'll get you one. He goes in the back, and he comes out with something that does not look like that except for the picture on the front of the box because it's in a nice flat box. You're going to get to go home and put this thing together. Oh, okay. Well, he takes it home. He's a non-dyslexic person. He slashes the box open nice and neatly down the side, dumps everything out on the living room floor. The last thing that falls out of the box is the instructions and directions. He grabs them up, and he starts to study them carefully to understand how to put this thing together, he proceeds to put it together correctly. The dyslexic does the same thing. He gets his bookcase in a box. He goes home and slashes the box open, dumps it out on the living room floor, And the last thing that falls out of the box is the instructions, and he grabs those up. But he puts them back here. He's going to use that to start a fire and stove. He grabs up the box and looks at the picture on the front. And he examines that picture real good, and he starts to put it together. The only thing is, he puts it together three times wrong before he gets it right, but that's okay with him. What he's doing, he's figuring this thing out. He needs to understand how and why this thing is put together like it is. That's what drives the dyslexic's thinking, is to know the why. So you could bring him another piece that uses the same structure, same type of assembly. You could bring him another piece without the instructions and give it to him and he'll put it together for you once he understands that instructions. that style. But if you bring this non-dyslexic person another one, you better bring in his directions. He has to have them. He needs them. He depends on them. to tell him how to proceed. There's just different ways that people operate and back down to children. You see the child that struggles in the classroom, but then when it's art time, they just excel and shine. Crafts, arts, things to do with their hands. But all of those children need to be recognized and feel accepted. Do you know that dyslexics, it's an, it's an own quality of a dyslexic to be able to have a to have special relationship with animals, to relate to animals in a way that animals can relate to them. They do very well with animals. And the reason for that is that your cat or your dog don't care whether you can spell or read at all. They like you for who you are. And that's what drives that relationship. So teachers don't despair sometimes when that student's looking out the window or looking for diversion or something, they may be working very hard, harder than you ever imagined, to get done what they're doing. You know, if you're working with a few tools, let's say we have two garage doors back there and two mechanics working in there. One mechanic shop is totally equipped with the latest in technology. The other mechanic over here, he has a tool chest with a few tools scattered around in the drawers. You roll the same jobs to be done in those two garages. Which one do you think is going to be able to do the better job? The one that is better equipped. I mean, it's just a natural given. The other one will do the job for you, but it's going to be a lot more work in getting it done. And that's kind of comparing children that have the tools, the phonetic tools to work with in school. Why do so many of these things show up about third grade? We might suspect them in for grades one and two, but they run smack into the wall in the third grade. That's where most of our calls come to us. And the reason for that is that in the first and second grade, we walk beside our students very closely, we're teaching them, we're giving them basic tools. And when they make a mistake, we quickly help them understand what they did wrong. And we stand there, you know, we're kind of going along with them until they've completed all of their phonics and foundational learning things. You get to the third grade and we expect these children to, rightly so, to step up and be able to work on their own. And that's where some children pitifully hit the wall, when the teacher steps away and expects them to stand on their own. And there's another reason for that, because most curriculums, almost all of them, in the first and second grade, they have a lot of pictures and illustrations to support the reading. By the time you get to the third grade, there's going to be a lot less pictures and illustrations and a lot more written material, and you're going to go, be moving into multisyllable words and larger words, more context in the, in the writing. And these four children that were barely surviving before, sometimes teachers tell me, Mr. Wick, she passed the first and the second grade, but there is no danger of her even getting out of the third grade unless something happens. So we have to go to work and do some evaluation and see what we can do and how we can help them. By the way, you can start the Barton program at any age. Uh, There's no. Some people think it's only for lower grade children. You know, no. We we've worked with children all through school and adults. We have adults. The oldest person we know of that successfully went through the Barton program was 86 years old. So if you're out there, a phonetic struggler tonight, and you think, well, I'm adult, don't worry, you're okay. We as teachers want to motivate our children and reward our children for their motivation. So we come up with motivation charts and motivation ideas. This is something that we need to think through and be careful with. Because if you've never been here, you don't know. But I was, and I do. When I walk into a classroom, and we walk into a lot of them, and I see the little train running across the wall here, and teachers are very creative in these motivational ideas. I see the little trains, a whole series of trains, and pasted on the wall there, and some of them have a whole row of cars behind them. And I know that represents some type of accomplishment. But then my attention is drawn to the one that just has the engine and the coal car down there. You know what that tells me? What it tells everyone? That individual is way behind. That motivational chart is a reminder to that child every day of the failure they are and they know that everyone else can see that they're a failure, too. And we wouldn't want to do that on purpose, but we have to be careful that our motivational charts are something that will bring the class together and make a child feel like putting their shoulder to the wheel with everyone else. So be careful of individual motivationals and how you work. Think about it. I know, teachers, I I came up with my own. Think about it. How can I do this in a way that makes this class work together? Because I've heard children after school, tomorrow we've got a spelling test, and they know it's a a good chance for some good grades, and and maybe there's a reward for everybody when we get to a certain point in something. And I've heard them, you know, encourage each other. You know, Johnny... Study tonight. Try hard. You can do it. You can do it. Really study. You know, when our peers are willing to walk with us and encourage us, it goes further sometimes than when teacher or mom or dad do it. But that's encouraging to hear them work together and also to have patience. Children know each other well. They really do. So that encouragement is something that goes a long ways in helping these children. I don't know how many of you, if there is anybody in here that does individualized education, uh, where children work at their own pace in cubicles or something like that, those are, that's a form of education that's been around for quite a while. When it comes to uh, your dyslexic, phonetic, struggling child, That is not a good choice. I'm sorry, I don't know any sweet way to say it. It's not a good choice. Because that child will often sit there and struggle and struggle on their own, not having the interaction or the classroom support in this thing, but they'll struggle. And besides, if someone would have put me in a cubicle and given me some work to do, When I was in school, I'd have loved it to death. I'd have had a picture of every kind of airplane and horse you can imagine. And other projects going on in there, but work is something that probably would not have gotten much done. Because of facing it alone, and it was hard. That class participation, that class pulling together, teacher interaction, those are things that help children. Your dyslexic sees a lot in pictures. They see a lot in pictures. So if you can give them things that will help the attachments that they can learn from, and I encourage teachers to use attachment heavily in your teaching of any children. And attachment, I mean, taking things that you've got a new concept or something we're trying to teach, attach it to something they already well know and understand. That's the handle that will help them store that away to retrieve it. If you can, you can put all you want to into their learning center and their knowledge, you can pack it full, but if you can't retrieve it, it's worthless. And a child that learns, well, your phonetic child especially, if you can imagine a vault, it's got all kinds of drawers in it, just lots of drawers. And as a child is learning, they're learning these things and they're storing them away to retrieve and use later in life or in their classroom. They're, you know, this knowledge is just being stored away in there and they know exactly where it's at, which drawer it's in and can retrieve it and use it. That's great. But the dyslexic child, his, his phonics slips away from him. Where did it go? What are those rules? How is it that you spell this word? How is it that you always use an S or a C? Okay. You know, when they go into that vault to search for the answer, they see all kinds of drawers that don't have handles on. And they're somewhat lost. Children that most dyslexic and children that struggle, they love to learn. If we can give it to them in a way they can hang on to it, make it interesting. Don't be afraid to step outside. The normal boxes climb out of the rut and meet the needs of children. <clears throat> Some of the things that children will struggle with, like memorization, memorization, Bible memorization, that's hard for dyslexics. It's hard to do. Uh, that's just a given thing. And when we think of uh, things that are that expose them, the thing of being exposed is, is one that's hard for me to, to leave alone because that was one of the things I struggled with so much, and I see other children that do too, and, is to be exposed in a classroom. Things that expose... How I can and can't do things. Be sensitive to that. I don't know how many of you in here know what uh, victory drill is. Uh, that's a good old standby that some schools have stuck by for stuck with for a long time. There's a place for victory drill. It's in a box in the attic. <laughs> It has some value, but I have seen so many children that struggled with having to stand up and in front of everybody else and go over a list of words and pronunciations and things like that. I'm not sure that there's not, well I am too, I'm just being, trying to say it nicely, there's a better way to do it. there is better ways to do it. Now, I'm going to be opening up for uh, question and answer here in a little bit. I want you to feel free to ask questions. Please don't save your questions. If you've got a question you really want to ask, there's probably four other people that want to ask the same one, and they'll all breathe a sigh if you ask it. So, you know, come forward with your questions when that time comes. Going back to what can help these children in the Barton program, I'm going to explain a little bit about the Barton program. See, to discover what dyslexia is all about, some people say this, this, this stuff is growing like everything. It's because of computers. No, dyslexia has been amongst us for centuries. It can be documented back for centuries. Children and people that struggled with words and being able to read and spell. And do you know that back there before the 1900s, it was called word blindness. It had a name. These children that struggle and these people that struggle phonetically... They were called word blind because for some reason they can't see these words. They figured it must have something to do with their brain or their eyes or something, but they knew it was a mental situation, and they called them word blind, but they didn't know what is causing it. And back then, all we had is a very physical way of science studying the human body. So this is the way they did it. They took brains once people were finished with them and put them in clear preservative fluid in a clear container along with the written life story of accomplishments and successes and failures and weaknesses and you could read about the person that once owned this brain. Now, this is very real. If you go to Harvard University, they've got the Harvard Brain Bank, and it looks like a library, just rows of shelves, and you can imagine what's on those shelves, brains. But this is all science had to study. They would study and measure and look at these brains, and they started noticing something that led to further research. but. The person that does not struggle and reads well and does not have a phonetic issue, they carry 10% more brain matter on the left than on the right. That's a consistent design of that brain. But the person that did struggle, he carries the same amount of brain matter on both sides. So the dyslexic person has 10% more brain matter. Now, only God knows why and how, but these were things that they studied and they recognized that there is a physical difference in this brain, and they were right. It is, that's the equipment that these people have to work with. So, when we were taking our course, we have the advantages of technology Thank you, brother. You didn't breathe on that, did you? No. Thank you. <laughs> that brain that is a non-dyslexic person, is they began to read something. What goes on up here? How is this processing taking place? Okay, blood, the body has an, uh, the natural reaction of anything we do with the body, use it in any way, those areas get a rush of oxygen-rich blood. And the brain is the same way. A lot of different parts that are responsible for different functions. When you put those functions to work, that part of the brain gets a shot of oxygen-rich blood. So with an MRI, we were able to see soft material. Hard-headed people are out of luck. But they can view that brain, but with an fMRI, they can view that brain in action. It's like a video. So in research, giving a person something that would activate different parts of the brain, we can see where the oxygen-rich blood is going. With a non-dyslexic person, they pick up something, begin to read it. The first thing that lights up is the optics. Those optic nerves are taking in that reflection into the brain. And where does it go from there? Remember, we're going to process this material. We're, ta- we're decoding these words. We're seeing the sounds. That goes into the brain. The next place it lights up is over here in this temporal area. This is where the, we'll call it the processing center. It's where the machinery is at. And it's going to use our phonetic tools to process these sounds into words. And then once it's processed, the next place it lights up is right back here in this back, this lobal area behind the left ear. And that is going to light up as we'll call it the learning center where knowledge is stored and retrieved. And that's the normal course of a non dyslexic person. But if you take a dyslexic person and give them something to read, when they start to read, very similar, the optics light up, the processor lights up, and then the processor just stays. That's where the blood just kind of balls up. Because they're struggling in that area, because of the lack of phonetic tools, they're struggling to process these sounds into letters and words. And then it begins to trickle back here, just just to trickle back here. And actually there will be some other neurological pathways on the right-hand side of the brain that will start to light up. Blood is flowing back here, trying to get to the same place that it's supposed to be by an alternate route. Maybe it's a scenic route, I don't know. But that brain is different. Those two brains are different. And you can see the proof of it, that technology has shown it to us. If a person is being remediated, like going through the Barton program, this is something that I found just amazing. That if they have initial MRIs, we can see how their brain is functioning. As they are remediated, there's changes. We see more and more Blood flowing back here quicker because they're getting tools to work with. And some of the pathways on the right hand side of the brain will evaporate, will start vanishing out of that hemisphere. It's simply because we have tools to work with, that's all it is. It's just phonics. We didn't get our phonics the first time, but we can get them later, but we could get them in a different way. Remember, the dyslexic needs to understand how and why. When we understand why you do things, that gives us the know to understand it and hang on to it. Have you ever known someone that's just not satisfied with things that aren't up to par? That as they process life, they want to do things to, to improve That's normal thinking patterns for dyslexic. We're going home tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and we've got a long ride ahead of us. But we have to go home and pick corn yet tomorrow night because Friday is a big corn day for us down home. We've got a lot of corn. The reason I brought that up is because I remember years ago, you know how everybody used to stand around with their brushes and water hose, you know, and they're cleaning their corn. Well, I was doing the same thing one day, and, and uh, normally I run the cooker and have other responsibilities. But I, I was helping them get ahead, and I was standing there. You know, I thought this is just this is not work, a, a way, happening way to do this. I mean, there's got to be a better and another way to do this. And We're all standing there brushing one cob at a time. It wasn't long, and I was in the shop, and I went out there and. I'm a certified welder as well. I soon had me a a contraption put together, simple, but quite effective. A pipe mounted through a bearing block with a pulley on it attached to a motor with a belt. And in each end of that pipe was stuck a bottle brush that you wash bottle, calf bottles with. And when you plug that little jewel up, those two Those two brushes went just as quiet, and they were spinning. Then you could take a cob of corn and just go, throw them in the bucket. No brush, no back and forth. Just as fast as you could rub them back and forth. I was so pleased with myself until my daughter walked past that thing, and we found out what it will do to a ponytail. One scream, and she was on her knees, and that thing was wrapping it up in knots i jerked i was standing right there so i stopped it and untangled her but we realized you have to stay away from the open brush you know today we have one of those kind that you stick the cobs in the end and they come out the other end all brushed and washed and nice uh we picked it up in uh, pennsylvania when we were visiting schools but the thinking that went behind that was simple It was just, we have to do something better. That's the way those children and people are. They've made huge contributions to who we are and how we do all parts of life. But when they were in school, they could not prove who they were because they were dealing with the struggles of academics.